0: Acts chapter 12. Remember last week, we saw Peter, you know, Herod, one of the Herods, grandson of Herod the Great, killed James, uh, the brother of John, not the brother of Jesus. Put Peter in prison. Peter got out. Pick up in verse 20. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And with one accord, they came to him and having won over blasts the king's chamberlain, and they were asking for peace because their, turn, their country was fed by the king's country. Um, this, here is one of the classic Bible jokes in verse 20 when people says, what kind of car did they drive? They drove an accord because it says, with one accord, they came to him. So that's a, that's a classic yeah, I understand. I didn't make the, I didn't say I made it up. I don't ever hear me telling you. But if you ever want to tell a really silly joke, the other one is, "What sport did they play in the Bible?" And it's tennis, because Moses served in Pharaoh's court, and that was the other one. So Tyre, Sidon. If, if you if you look, look on a map along the Mediterranean Sea, um, this is the area where Jezebel once came from. The Phoenicians they were they were dependent upon. The area that Herod, and Herod ruled, on, you know, he, he ruled, I'm still under the leadership of the Romans, but over the area that he ruled, they were dependent on food, and somehow they got crossed with him. We don't know how they got crossed with him, but they did, and they realized they could lose their food, and maybe more, and so they got a hold of Blastus, who was somehow in the king's uh, group. And uh, they wanted peace because it was fed. And so they wanted an appointment with him. And what they were going to go do was go to the king and grovel and tell him how great he was. And on verse 21, it says, On the appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took a seat at the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. It's interesting. uh, There are a couple of other guys who wrote during this time. The most famous is a guy named Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian. Though actually, uh, a lot of times the Jews disowned him. Um, he wrote two major works: um, Antiquities and I think the Jewish Wars with the Romans. He documented, in many ways, the destruction of Jerusalem. We get most of our knowledge about the destruction of Jerusalem from the Romans comes really from him. He was—he's a pretty credible historian. He has known to embellish. Um, a little bit and be wrong a couple times. Whenever he and Luke, who basically were kind of contemporaries, whenever they disagree, they don't agree on something they'll talk about. Most modern historians will side with Luke because they've never ever found Luke to be wrong about anything. They have found Josephus. But Josephus talks about this event. And he talks about Herod being dressed in this silver robe, and when he walks out and the sun hits the robe, it glistens and shines, and he got this aura about him uh, that looked like someone of some degree angelic or divinity, which coincides with really kind of what Luke says. Uh, he embellishes, or not embellishes in a bad way, but he spends more time talking about what it looked like, but they both agreed with this. Verse 22, the people cried out the voice of a God and not a man, uh, Herod notices this, I mean, uh, 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 Josephus notices this and criticizes Herod for accepting worship and praise, as does Luke in verse 23. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory he was eaten by worms and died. That is just, it's a violent, he's describing a violent way of dying. Josephus does the same thing. Now, finally, we finally get a Herod who dies and deserves it. Herod the Great was brutal, we know that, killed, slaughtered the innocents. You know, and we'll see another Herod in a minute uh, that uh, put John the Baptist to death, tried Jesus. Here's another cruel Herod. Uh, so it, it's some interesting different takes on it medically, but uh, some think it was a cyst at birth that burst to cause pain. But basically, what happened back then, because of their dietary habits, is they would, get, they would get worms, and these worms would nod up into like this rolling like ball in their gut and would cause blockage. And it was a very painful way to die. And uh, Herod, I think, I think several days, almost a week, I think Josephus talks about that. So he died a very painful and violent death and then went to hell. And it didn't get any better. I, I, you know, I just tell you that because sometimes it's good to see the bad guys get in this life what they have coming. I know that's morbid from a pastor and you want me to talk about the love that we should have for Herod. But I'm not. But notice this in verse 24. The word of the Lord continued to grow and multiply. multiplied. So get this. We started chapter 12 last week. Herod was ruling. James was put to death. Church was persecuted. Things looked hopeless. Now, Herod's dead. Peter was freed. And the church just keeps on growing. Luke wants us to, we see all these things going on. And Luke keeps reminding us and sharing with us. The growth of the church. That, that Christianity, when I say the church, I mean general. That the, that the Christian movement, What back then they called it the way, just keeps growing it keeps moving. That nothing can get in its way. And one by one, that which opposes or tries to block the church is defeated. You saw Ananias and Sapphira get defeated. Paul, in his efforts, got defeated and he actually got converted. Here you see... This initial persecution get defeated. I mean, you, you just see God continually to work. So it's an important thing to note. And, and, and I think for us to remember that we meet opposition in life because of our faith. We meet things that obstruct us, that, that make life difficult. We're going to get past it. It was a church, we struggle. We see that. Now, right now, our church doesn't get a lot of that. And, I, and I'm thankful and I praise God for that. But we still have things that block our path, we we have to look and see, how is God going to work to get us past it? Because he is. And in your life, you have to think that way. In your life, you have to understand that God provides a way out, over or through all the situations you find. So that verse 25 says this, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, when they had fulfilled their mission, taking with them John, who was also called Mark. Now, this we don't, This doesn't necessarily mean this happened immediately one after the other. After Peter uh, was released, or, or excuse me, escaped, sometime um, this Herod died around 44 BC, maybe a little bit after, right around that, and then it could very well be that a couple of years may have passed to verse 25. So just understand a little bit of time passes. This, this chapter covers a larger period of time than like a week or a few days that we, we kind of think it does. It looks that way. They wrote in a different style back then in the East, and the Hebrew people did, and even Luke, <clears throat> as a Gentile, did. But telling us about Barnabas and Saul sets up chapter 13. Also with John Mark, who, by the way, as I ship before, was a pivotal figure. He wrote the Gospel of Mark, he was close to Paul, had a falling out with Paul, which we'll see in a couple weeks or two, but then was, was, got reconciled to Paul, was close to Peter because many believe, as and I do, that most of the information in his Gospel of Mark came from Peter. So he becomes a pivotal person. First, chapter 13, my Bible has this, uh, my version, my, the first missionary journey. We see something happen. Now up until this point, people have gone to share Jesus. We should assume that there had been a great mass leaving in Jerusalem to go to a lot of different parts of the world. We know that some of the apostles went to places, uh, India and Egypt and places like that. Uh, We've already had documented a couple of guys went to some places. We know there's a church that already started in Rome. We were told that, you know, people from Cilicia uh, uh, went over, uh, from Crete and other places. Cilicia went over to um, Antioch to help plant that church. And so we, we see that. But we're we're about to go, what Luke's about to do is focus on now Paul. Peter is going to play a minor role. Peter will come back in on chapter 15, and we're done with Peter. After chapter 15, we're done with James, the brother of Jesus. Really, for the most part, it's all about Paul. We're we're going to see the prominence of Paul and his evangelistic efforts come forth. And so we're going to get on his first journey. Most of you probably have a Bible or access to a Bible that lists the journeys of Paul. Uh, the first one went to uh, what we would say basically today kind of Turkey. Back then they would call the province of Asia and a few other places, but the Asia Minor, that area. And and this is not the European uh, evangelistic efforts. That is the second and third journey uh, that you see in the book of Acts. But this journey, we'll spend a few weeks in it and see some key things. But I want you to notice what happens because what what. What we're gonna see a little bit of here is what we call ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is the doctrine of the church. The word church comes from the word ecclesia. The word ecclesias, um Cho, I saw Cho. Where's Cho? Cho, tell us what the word ecclesia means. Like assembly. Yeah. And it comes from what two Greek words? out of. And you were gonna say Kaleo the call? I just had to do that to you, Dr. Andrews. I hear so much about how smart you are. So I'll put you on the spot, yeah. So it comes from the word to call out out of, which is the easy of the two, and uh, from, and kaleo, to call, to call out. And it means assembly. And he thought he was going to get away just with saying assembly, but I put him on the spot even more. And so anytime you have an ology, comes from the Greek word logos. The word of. So ecclesiology is a word about the church. And really it has to do with things like church order and the way the church is structured. And we see a little glimpse of that in here, but it's an important part. And what we're going to see early on is the relationship between the personal call someone feels upon their life by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit working through the church to affirm that call. In all cases, it's the work of the Holy Spirit, but he does it through the individual experience and the church recognition of all that. And so what we see over here in verse 4, excuse me, in verse 1, there was an Antioch in the church that was there. The group ones called out prophets and teachers. Now, there were other people of gifted qualities, and, and, and we know a lot of gifts, I'm not going to go into do a thing about gifts. I know people sometimes say, how do I do my spiritual gifts? I, I, it's very simple. I'll, I'll just do a quick thing on gifts. Um, here's how you know what your, what your gifts are. I don't think we're limited to 20 or 22 like many people do. I don't believe in tests of the gifts because I don't think humans can write a test that forces the Holy Spirit to comply with it. That's what the Holy Spirit gives you, the gifts. How in the world can I, I don't care how smart I am or Joe is, and, and we are together, our IQ is triple digits. I don't care how smart, we can't write a test that determines what the work of the Holy Spirit, are you kidding me? Who thinks that we can write a test to determine the work of the Holy Spirit? A lot of, evidently evidently, a lot of people do. So here's, here's what I tell people all the time. And don't worry about the categorical worries and they fall into certain groups of ministry, blah, 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 blah. Here are two things. What do you like to do and what are you good at? If you like to do something but aren't any good at it, it's not a gift. It's a wish. I use this oftentimes in the area of singing. You can like to sing, but if someone other than your mama and your grandmama don't tell you you're good at it, it ain't a gift. So if you like to do something, but you're not good, it's not a gift. You can do it. But, and, and, and also, you can be good at something, but it's not really your passion. Like, I'm pretty good at administrative stuff, but I hate doing it. So it's not really a gift. It's a chore. So that's, go down that road. I know that's not the most spiritual thing but if there's something in, in, the, in the world and related to the church you're good at and you like doing it, it's, it's the way that the Holy Spirit has got you there, okay? So we need to understand that, that preachers, and, and prophet and teachers, what they talk about here, these, these are the guys that were involved with communicating the Word of God. They communicated the gospel message. They communicated truth. The idea of prophet, is the idea of a proclaimer? It is not the one who tells the future. Now there is a great deal of you know disagreement among people you know who do this sort of stuff, preachers and, and professors and all that about the word you know, what the word prophet means in the New Testament in particular. And um, I know actually I give Joe credit when he wrote his doctoral paper he did a great job of analyzing that. And uh, but the word prophet comes from the idea of to speak the mind of God. It is a proclaimer of God's revealed truth. So today, it is not about telling the future. It is not about proclaiming what's going to happen in the end times because God has not revealing to people what's going to happen. God stopped revealing new information in the New Testament, okay? Okay. People struggle with that. I don't want to tell you. Otherwise, you're going to have cults come up all over the place. If I can say that God has revealed to me certain things that are outside the scope of Scripture, then we have a problem. So a prophet is one who speaks the mind of God in the words, who proclaims the truth. A teacher is very similar. It's not much different. But a teacher is one who tends to teach probably more systematically or functionally. So, like, Sundays, I, I more or less take the role of the prophetic role where I'm proclaiming stuff. And here I spend more time teaching and go deeper. There's not a huge difference, but they had these guys. So what he's saying is this. They had other gifted leaders, but these five guys that are mentioned were gifted in this area. Yeah, they have Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, um, Something that was Simeon, uh, who uh, carried the cross of Christ um, uh, from Cyrene. There was Lucius of Cyrene. There was Menaean who had been brought up with Herod. This, this Herod is the Herod that killed John the Baptist, and the Herod that had been uh, at the trial of Jesus came before. Understand? Here is a leader. Here is a leader in the Christian movement at Antioch, who was gifted as a as a as a preacher and teacher. He, the, the word grew up with. Some, it's like a foster brother. It means he was a companion. Sometimes people would grow up. Uh, the wealthy, especially aristocracy, especially those who might of rule would oftentimes have their children grow up with other children who did not other children, not children's, but other children who did not necessarily come from the same social class to be friends, to come companions, that what this means is what this means. How different these two guys had become. And there was this other guy named Saul. And it says, while they were ministering to the Lord and they were fasting, they were doing they were serving, they were fasting. Um, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work I have for them. Called them, and then when they had fasted and prayed, and they their hands on them, they sent them away. Notice it mentions fasting twice. Both times, fasting is connected with something, praying or, or ministering, sometimes worshiping. So let me just say this about fasting. We don't, we don't emphasize this a lot. I get it. I, have, uh, I know people who, who fast. That's fine. Uh, I have in the past. I don't make a big deal about it. I don't ever announce it. I, don't, I think it's a private thing. Fasting is oftentimes associated with not eating, but it's associated basically with not partaking of some normal physical habit, uh, eating, sometimes sleeping for, not, for long periods of time or whatever, so you can focus on a spiritual need. So a lot. Sometimes you'll hear churches call forth for periods of fasting and prayer for something. I'm not a huge believer in that. I actually, you know, they get that some of that from here. I don't think that's a normative thing that you see expected of us in church because it puts a lot of guilt and pressure. You know, if I call, say we're going to spend the next you know 40 days fasting, and I want you to fast and pray and all this. I'm, A, going to spend a lot of time having to focus on the fasting and prayer, and, B, a lot of you aren't going to do it or feel guilty for not doing it or you can't do it and you're going to feel really guilt about it. Most of the time when people in in, in those situations fast, it's like they don't eat lunch, but they spend the time in lunch praying, And, you know, so eat early in the day, eat later in the day. You know, you hear about people, you think fasting for 40 days and nights, occasionally people do that as actually not healthy, nor do I think it's necessary. I know some great spiritual leaders have done it. That's fine. I'm not a great spiritual leader. Don't plan on being one. I ain't doing it. And I think it's the sort of thing you keep to yourself, but if you're going to do it, you're doing it for the purpose of instead of eating that meal or, you know, taking your afternoon nap or whatever it is. You spend that time normally in prayer, seeking the will of the Holy Spirit to a certain area, and then whatever length of time you say you're going to do, I'm going to do this for a week, or whenever that prayer has been answered, one way or the other, you stop. And that's what I would say. That's all I really want to say about it. You know, other people have other ideas. I get it. That's fine. You know, they can correct me. If, you know, they think I'm wrong. But notice the important thing here isn't this. It's that they were involved in seeking the will of God through the Holy Spirit. Notice it says this that the Holy Spirit had set aside both Saul, known as Paul, and Barnabas. So we see, first of all, an emphasis that the Holy Spirit said, set them apart for the work I have called them. So he had already called them to do. I would understand this as Barnabas and Saul knew already the Holy Spirit had called them. So you were seeing the the, the, the Holy Spirit. Now you say, how did the Holy Spirit make this known? Maybe one of the guys, you know, said, hey, you know, remember, the New Testament hadn't been written yet. So, remember, one of the guys was, you know, bringing the word of God. God spoke to them. Maybe it's through prayer they came to realize that a lot of times, you know, a group of Christians can meet together and pray together. And they all begin to realize the same thing, and the Holy Spirit's working through them. Understand, just because there's not a new new revelation doesn't mean the Holy Spirit doesn't still work. The Holy Spirit still works. I mean, every time I preach, I'm asking the Lord to let the Holy Spirit work through me. Uh, t- to share truth with you. Help me to understand me. The Holy Spirit wrote the New Testament and the Old Testament, so I want to get an idea of what he wanted in this. So I'm saying, help me, Lord, understand. Help, help the Holy Spirit reveal to me. Help me understand exactly what it is he wants me to say so that I can do that. So I mean, that's all, it's all legit. What you have here is a recognition that not only did the Holy Spirit work to set aside these two guys, but the church had an obligation to recognize that the Holy Spirit did that. And so in doing that, it says, they prayed about it some more, and then they laid their hands on them and sent them away. In other words, they recognized. Now, here they're laying on their hands. Oftentimes, we, as Baptists especially, associate that with ordination. That's not what that means. I I have come, a a long time ago, I came to an understanding that our concept of ordination, while, while biblical in the sense that it's not against Scripture, laying on of hands especially, is not necessarily called for. In other words, there's not a mandate that we ordain and, 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 and set aside uh, with laying on of hands or officially voting someone in, in the ministry and saying, okay, now you're it. And and that all of a sudden, once that happens, then all of a sudden I have gifts and all of that. I was ordained in uh, 82 and I was really young I I was too young for them to ordain me I know that now but I had shown enough promise and served on the church staff that I had and all that but what the ordination really the importance of it was was listen when I knelt there and all these guys laid their hands on me first of all it's kind of gross some of them have really bad breath. I'm, not, I'm just saying that. And so it was not a, it's not necessarily the great experience. Your back's hurting from kneeling. And so, you know, as spiritual as it is, and, and it is spiritual also, Yeah. But the most important thing about that wasn't that act. It was the fact that the church, my home, by the church I was serving, Northside Baptist, and then my own church, Park Hills, recognized that I was called to ministry. The importance of it was the affirmation that this cat right here is called by God. To be a minister. So that's, that's the important of it. It's not the laying on the hands. It's not, it's not the certificate that I have that I still have that they misspell things on. So I don't even know if it's valid if you misspell stuff. But what's important is the fact that church people recognize God's gifted. It's not just that the Holy Spirit calls someone. Is that the people need to recognize, yeah, he called them. They need to recognize that. Now, notice, this was for a very specific purpose, to go out and to do this first missionary journey. We, we have at times... Since I've been here, taking young men and and set them apart for very specific things like that, um, and recognized to give credence and credibility, especially on the mission field. So we did that to uh, what was the kid's name, Joe? Scott, Bub? Yeah. So we did that for Scott because in doing that, he didn't need it from our standpoint, but on the mission field, he needed us. He, that for his credibility, he needed for his home church to say, yes, we recognize this guy is set apart. So that's what the importance of that is. So what we see here with the setting apart of Paul and Barnabas is the Holy Spirit move. And these are the guys who's obvious. The church recognized that, but they also recognized it for a very specific purpose. Paul, in his letters, writes that no man, set him aside, that his apostolic credentials are owed to no human being, but to the Lord only. So Paul does not look at this event as validating his ministry at all. What this event is, is a recognition by the church that Barnabas and Saul are the ones the Lord is going to use on this journey. Now, this is important because whether they understand or not, this is the first systematic, detailed, organized journey from a church to a, an area that we know of. And this, this, this is I mean, that's the only first count we know of, where these two guys go in to do that. So that's what you have here. That's why this is important. But it is from this passage and others that we see and we recognize the importance of setting people aside and we can do it for a variety of reasons we can do it i've seen it done um when a guy goes and plants a new church someone who's already been ordained and already set aside but i've I've known churches to say okay this guy is coming from our church he's going to go plant a church somewhere else and so they'll they'll have a special time where they they recognize that and send him off uh, well, it's not an ordination. He may or may not have already been ordained, but it's a recognition of that. I've seen it in people going and doing, um, in, on the mission field. When I left my first church, uh, I had a group of my friends. I didn't ask for this, but they came. As I was making a move to go to the valley, they came and they, they laid hands on me and said, we just want you to know that we, we recognize you going and doing this. So, you know, that can be an important thing. The importance of it is that it is the church or some portion of the church recognizing the calling of the Holy Spirit upon the life of someone and that someone has also recognized it. It is is a collaborative effort to recognize the work of the Holy Spirit. So that's a really cool and critical thing. And then next week we'll see the kickoff